Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome back to part two of this week's bumper jam-packed jamboree of an Empire podcast. We've got a couple of amazing guests coming up for you. I'm joined, of course, as ever, as for the first part, by my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, Yawny Man, James Dyer. June! June! We have, we have to refight Liza every now and again by just going, there's a Fremen coming up, James. June! Oh, June, I love a still suit. Uh, Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. June! June. June. And the nicest man in showbiz, Ben Travis. Hi. June. <laughs> I feel like when James wakes up every morning, he kind of bursts back into consciousness by sitting bolt upright in bed and going, June. <laughs> it does. The spice gives me life. <laughs> the spice must flow. Spice up your life. Oh. People of the world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we have got three guests this week. So before we get into the movie news, do we have one more? Because three guests, and then we can do a guest, then a section, then a guest, then a section, then a guest. And then we're done. Sure. All right. Okay. So we're going to have a guest. Who do you want? Jonathan Majors Mm -hmm. or Zack Snyder and Matthias Schweighofer? Let's do Zack and Matthias. Zack and Matthias. Sounds like a CBB show, doesn't it? It does. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's Zack and Cody, wasn't it? Was Zack and Cody? The sweet life of Zack and Matthias. Zack and Matthias. So Zack Snyder, you know who Zack Snyder is. He is uh, one of the biggest directors on the planet. Earlier in the year, he had a double whammy with Zack Snyder's Justice League and Army of the Dead, his big old two and a half hour Helen scaring zombie epic that was on Netflix. You're, you're okay with the zombies? Yeah, because they've got the, plans. The they're movie, not real. No. They're proper, not proper zombies. The faster movie ones, f- shit, no, they fuck me up. No, no, but absolutely those not. zombies had strategy. That's not a zombie thing. I don't like it. I don't disapprove. Not well, yeah, but you know, the, the, the anyway, alpha the, zombies had strategy, but not the the main zombies. I just feel like we're yeah, purism. Yeah. Anyway, those things will fuck you up. Yeah, faster than a bullet. <laughs> okay, that is for damn sure. Uh, where was I? Sack and Matthias. Yes. So, in an incredible vote of confidence for Army of the Dead, before that movie had even hit Netflix, they had already greenlit and started shooting on a prequel featuring that movie's German safecracker Ludwig Dieter, played by Matthias Schweighofer. Now, Matthias Schweighofer is also a director in his own right, so Zack Snyder, who is the producer of Army of Thieves, which is the name of the prequel, recruited Matthias Schweighofer to not only reprise the role of Ludwig Dieter, but also to direct it as well. Now it is a prequel set five years or so before the offense of Army of the Dead. It is in a completely different genre, and we'll get onto it in the review section, but I thought it was a lot of fun. And I caught up with Zach and Matthias over Zoom last Saturday and had a go at matter about that, and as ever, a great many things. Here we go. Zach and Matthias. Zach and Matthias. Zach and Matthias. Do please enjoy. Sack, Matthias, welcome to the Empire Podcast. How the devil are you both? Great. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Where are you both, by the way? You know, I, th- I thought you might be in the same room, but you're clearly not. Uh, I'm in Berlin. And Zach, where are you? I'm in Hollywood, California. I'm in, I'm in London, England. See? They're not very world-encompassing. <laughs> A truly international podcast for a truly mm-hmm. international film. Um, yeah. In a way, does the fact that you guys are so far apart, does that uh, reflect the way this movie was made? Because it was made in the middle of a pandemic. And Zach, I imagine you weren't able to get over to set very often. I was not, not at all, as a matter of fact. Sadly. Okay. But um, yeah, no, it was very, it's a very uh, innovative, we broke a lot of, we created a lot of new um, ways of making movies. Look, the truth is, Matthias did such a good job, and he's 
you know, he's so good at what he does, not only as a director, but also as a actor that, um, you know, I would have just fucked it up if I had gone over. <laughs> what, what, uh, <laughs> what would you have done, Zach? How would you have fucked it up? You couldn't have fucked it up. What, what, what's going know, on? I'm pretty clumsy. I might have kicked some lights out of the sockets, you know, and they could have shut off right in the middle of a take or, um, you know, like sneezed during like this really dramatic moment. So yeah. that, like, you know, like, and he would have been like, excuse me. Uh, can we get this guy off my set, guy. please? Get that guy out of here. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, Matthias, um, obviously, Zach wasn't wasn't on set. Did you find yourself ever looking over to where he might have been looking wistfully for his guidance? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I did that a lot of times, to be honest. But uh, no, we had this. Um, I really missed Zach on set because when we first talked about the prequel and I was asking him, hey, if you can come over, if when you will be in, 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 in Prague, uh, what do you think? Maybe, you know, on this special day, would you do camera? Would you do some stuff or would you be an extra acting or just say? You know, I actually like, did. I did volunteer to operate the second camera. I did volunteer that. Yeah. And uh, I was sad that, that there was no way that we met on set because it would be so funny because I did it. I did one shot because I saw it on Army of the Dead because Zach was operating the camera the whole time. And that was so impressive that <laughs> I took handhold on a shot in the film and it's just a detail on a, on the uh, a flask of Jonathan Cohen, you know, yeah. when he's touching oh, yeah. the bullet, that's me shooting this. And I, and I thought even these five minutes, I thought, fucking holy shit, this camera is so heavy. How did Zach do that? Like in the desert, it's 80 degrees plus 80 degrees and it's like it like for 16 14 hours today that was crazy but i but uh, i wish that he could be with us but there, there was no possibility i mean but sack that's why you that's why you hit the gym that's why you have this this fitness regime because those things are heavy yeah yeah and that's not entirely why but certainly part of it <laughs> there, there are other factors as well but holding, other holding small every... factors but mostly all the, yeah. all the weights i have in my gym i like I lift them onto my shoulder like this. I do lots of camera exercises, tilting and panning. Yeah, I don't actually do any of it. Oh, it's a shame. It's a shame. I was wondering because, you you know, honestly, you could be the new Jane Fonda. You could have your own Zack Snyder. Camera workout. That's where I really got rich, actually. It wasn't the movies. It was when I sold the camera workout. Oh, yeah. This would be funny. You with the microphone, lift and pan. Lift and pan. Tilt and pan and tilt. And boom down. That's squatting. That would have been like a squat. Boom down. Boom up. Yeah. This might be the thing that gets me fit, genuinely, because I, I have such a trouble getting to, I have trouble motivating myself to get fit. But honestly, if you did the Zack Snyder camera workout and it came out in time for Christmas, next time we speak, I'd be ripped. So okay. yeah. I'm just putting it out there. You have, you're, resp- you are, big, you're responsible for my health, Zack. That's a lot of responsibility. I don't like that. <laughs> but I want to talk about about how this happened in a way for you guys. Because I was on set of Army of the Dead and I got to see Sack direct you, Matthias. And was that when it happened? Did you go and have conversations and sort of this directorial match happened? Is that where is that where it happened on the set of that movie? Yeah, it happened. Um 
Well, it started, we, we had talked about right from the beginning that there would be an opportunity to do some spinoffs within the world of Army of the Dead. We thought, you know, we have this ensemble gas. I kind of jump over the zombie outbreak in the movie. So there's a lot of time between the zombie outbreak and where we are in the movie. Yeah. So that was the original thinking. Then we started talking about, Shay and I were talking about the, the Gotthard Damarung and the ring cycle and the different safes and the why of the safes and the, um, you know, Hans Wagner and his like epic opera and all that shenanigans. And so it was, and then when I saw Matthias do this scene, his first scene where he explained the mythology of the Gotterdammerung, that's when I was like, wait a minute, that's a movie, there's a movie in there. There might be a movie to be made. And then we started talking about it. And then when I saw his awesome performance, and as we saw Dieter's, the way he um, sort of crafted that character in the movie, I was like, this, this is great. And then, you know, and Matisse is a director anyway, mm -hmm. and a great actor, and his resources and his, um, you know, he knows this European community. Everything seemed to make, you know, line up perfectly. And, and um, that's kind of how, and then I went to him and I said, what do you think? You want to do this movie? And direct it and be in it and just do it. <laughs> And Matthias, what did, what did you say? What was your first uh, reaction to that? Of course. Fuck, fuck you. Oh, of course. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> How dare you ask me to do How this? How dare you? That's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I will never, you know, that was a, at first I really thought it was a joke. To be honest, you know, that was, that, 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 that was so weird. And, uh, uh, but, and, and so I was so honored and still like afraid at the, at the same time. And, uh, and I will never forget, even till the first day of shooting, I thought, anyway, this is a prank or, uh, um, or this is, this is for real. And after sh shooting day five, I, I, I recognized, okay, this is real. This is not, that, that's not a joke anymore. So um, it was, yeah, an elaborate it, it was an elaborate hoax we were playing. Like we created this fake movie. <laughs> But this would be crazy. Imagine. I know the premise. I know the premise of Army of the Dead does sound like a prank movie. So I get it. But yeah. And now, now you're staging a fake junket as well, which is you're, you're really yeah. taking it We're to really the We're really taking degree. it along. We're going to really take it along. We actually released the fake movie. I've seen the movie. Netflix, considering it's not even real. <laughs> it's wild. But, you know, when you commit to something, you really commit. And I, and I like that. No, we go but, all the way. We go all the way. So we have a sequel where we're going to reveal it to him that it's not that it's not real. So this is kind of a funny. This is one of those infinite loop moments where, like, we're we're later on. I mean, remember how I was joking about it being a prank movie and how you thought we were kidding, and now it turns and, out that it really is. <laughs> and, and you know, if we talk about the time loop, this will be. There is another day of doing press where Zach is asked, you know, when when. What was the exact moment where you know, okay, we would prank this guy, and, and you would say like, you know, there is this beginning scene, and he's like, you know what the blueprint is, and I thought, okay, 
that's that's a prank. That's a prank. We have a prank. Uh, this would be really funny. Oh my, oh my god. god! Yeah, this is. Uh, I think we. I think we've hit upon the new spin-off, guys. This is. Uh, yep. This is going to be. Yep. This could be fun after yep. Zach's uh, fitness tape. Obviously, uh, that's the next one to do. Um, because uh, obviously, the, the this is a very different genre from army of the dead and army of the dead was playing around with genres anyway and it was it was it was mashing things up and this mashes things up also so you have you have action thriller you have heist movie you have rom-com in there as well was that exciting to you both to do that to play with those different genres and smoosh them all together yeah well for me absolutely and i think that was the premise of army was to deconstruct the genre completely, a genre that I'm super comfortable with and kind of felt really at ease doing. And when we started talking about this this movie, you know, that was one of the things when Matias and I were talking about making the movie, whether, whether that was like, these were, this was a world where he would feel comfortable deconstructing as well. Like, you know, and I knew that it's experience, uh, you know, in romantic films and sort of understood the understood the construction and everything. And, you know, this the safe cracking heist element, also fun to mess around with, of course. And uh, and then he did a great job on the action, I thought, too. So, yeah. Fun. Matthias, which of those elements was the most challenging for you? Of course, I loved the action and I loved everything that was like genre, genre in the film because it's that we cannot do that often in uh, in Germany. But um, I always, it my films I did, especially the funny stuff, um, it was always like about finding the right rhythm, timing, you know, actors together in a van, have, creating a rhythm with actors. And at the end, you know, exactly, okay, this is funny. It's a joke where, where it's a universal joke, not a, only a German joke or not only you know, just like, you know. It, 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 so to work on that with an international team of actors, that was like really challenging because, uh, yeah, uh, uh, we had limited time. And, uh, but I, 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 loved, I, I loved it, you know, to, to really create some cool rhythms in the film with acting. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it focuses on this really interesting relationship, this really lovely relationship between, I think we can, I think the cat's out of the bag now, between Sebastian, that's that's what, you know, Ludwig Dieter's yeah. called in, in this movie, uh, and Gwendolyn, and Gwendolyn, and yeah. um, Natalie Emmanuel is fantastic in it. And that shot in Army of the Dead, where we see that, you know, Dieter now works at this place called Gwendolyn's Safe and Lock Co. Was that, at what point was that put in the film? We we were working on that shot uh, pretty, I would say that shot, we, we had that shot done, I mean, not right away, but we, we, at the point we were finishing Army, we were in production on this movie, so we were definitely, like, those shots were getting rebuilt and stuff. So it's okay. a nice, it is a cyclical and kind of very fun, you know, the relationship between the two movies is really, is really fun. I yeah. Think. It really is, because what it does when you see that thing, when you see that sign in Army of the Dead, and having already been virtually on the set of Army of Thieves, I knew Gwendolyn's importance. But as a, as a viewer, you're going, well, this character must have had a huge impact on Ludwig Dieter in order for her to be the name of his business in America. So, Matthias, you have to, in the course of two hours, to set up 
this relationship? How did you how did you do that? How did you come at that as as a director? Oh yeah, I'm, first I had a great draft, and a, a, a lot of stuff was written. So and I had a fantastic cast, and and in that relationship, to be honest. What I loved about the origin story, because it tells a bit of my story too, that there that you always need someone who gives you a tiny push and invites you to to see the bigger picture, you know. And uh, and I love that about um, um, uh, that film. And then when Hans Zimmer came in and he talked about you know what could be the right tune for Dieter, it, it totally makes sense because he gave uh, Dieter this deep, heartful, lovely sound, you know, like uh, music. And with that, uh, I think this relationship between that girl and this crazy nerdy German who became braver and braver with every minute of the film. I mean, I think, frankly, having Hans and Steve, like, you know, do the the music for this movie really, um, you know, was kind of like the bow on the package, you know, to me, you know, it's kind of the, you know, how like at the end, like there's that last bit that, you know, everything's there at the alchemy, the like magic of the movie, it's all sitting there. But what is the one thing that kind of just kind of unifies it into like this? Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's what Hans was able to really bring to the, to the thing is that one little last. <laughs> that's very specialized. That was almost using a safe metaphor. I wasn't trying to, <laughs> that last click. Of the so, thing, you know. So he's the the, the tumblers, the tumblers click yes. into place. Yeah, okay. just fell into place. Absolutely. Don't, don't, it's really rude to use a safe metaphor in this, Listen, in this setting, you, but I had. You got to go with it. You got to go with it. You know, if you <laughs> didn't, if you didn't, it would be rude, quite frankly, to the film if we didn't do a safe cracking analogy <laughs> at some point. Um, but um, I got to let you guys go in a second. But I have to ask, and I don't think this is treading into spoiler territory for this movie. It's maybe treading into spoiler territory for Army of the Dead, but sure, Army of the Dead too. Army of the Dead too. I want. I want to ask about that, but I also want to ask about oh oh for Dieter. people who haven't seen Army. Yeah, don't worry. I'll tell people that there's a, a spoiler for Army of the Dead coming up. But okay. Well, we were talking about how fun that is for people to see them now in this order. In oh. Army, Army of Thieves first, and then Army of the Dead, because there'll be a, there'll be a bunch of like people that are experiencing army after they watch army of thieves are going to be like, Oh, I should go check out that other movie. So they'll have a completely different way in than especially given the way this movie ends as well. So it'll be like, it's it's pretty much, do you want to watch army of the dead now? Well, yes, I do. Thanks very much. I will will check it out. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So this is the spoiler bit that I will, I will will make sure that people know Ludwig Dieter in that movie, his fate Seems pretty nailed on, but he's the only member of that film's cast who we don't actually see die definitively in the movie. So is there hope for him down the line? Uh, Do you think, do we do anything? Is there a lot of things that happen in these movies that are, what what do you call it? What do you, oh, an accident, an accident. Um, So yeah, I think there, look to me, when you go see Planet of the Dead, Whatever the sequel of Army of the Dead is called. Oh, come on, Zach. <laughs> You're gonna have who knows? Who yeah. knows? Who might be lurking in the shadows? <laughs> All I right. doubt okay. he's a zombie too. I doubt highly he's a zombie. 
I doubt Honey is a zombie as well. But okay, so so if uh, if in Planet of the Dead, that means there's got to be a Planet of Thieves as well. So Matthias, that Planet that's of Thieves a, is a cool. That's a cool <laughs> movie too. It's a sci-fi film where it's an entire planet made up of safe crackers, and the, but there's no safes on the planet, which is crazy. They have to go. But they're realizing that it's not the middle of the planet. The middle of the planet. It's like the biggest tumbler in the world, you know? So the planet is one tumbler. And uh, what, yeah. what if they, what if they right crack itself. the planet, you know? Right oh, my yeah. God. They, they crack a planet. Oh, my. Take that, yes. Danny. Ocean, Ocean's Eleven never did that. They never did that yeah. entire planet. The planet is a safe. Absolutely. And the planet is a safe. Make it happen. Matthias, if you can come back for that, that would be tremendous. I'd love to see that. I would love to do it. I will talk to Zach uh, next week I mean, when I'm we have right to. here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fitness video, then Army of, uh, then Planet of the Dead, then uh, Planet of Thieves, and that's it. We're we're done. We're done. Thank you very much indeed, guys. Thank you Mind so much, drop. Chris. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers Matthias. Okay, so that was Zack Snyder and Matthias Schweighofer, and we will be talking about Army of Thieves later in the review section of the show. But now it's time to talk about the week's movie news, and there's really, sadly, only one place we should start, and that is with the tragic events that took place last Friday on the set of the Western Rust in New Mexico. We have to be careful, obviously, with what we say about what happened, as it is a subject of an ongoing police investigation. But I'm sure you know by now that a firearm used in the movie by the actor Alec Baldwin was accidentally discharged whilst Baldwin was preparing to film a scene on location, fatally wounding the film's DP, Helena Hutchins, and wounding the director, Joel Souza. It is, of course, a terrible tragedy that comes almost 30 years after a similar incident on the set of The Crow took the life of Brandon Lee. That prompted an overhaul of on-set safety and procedures with firearms on movie sets. But this latest tragedy has provoked shock in the film industry, outrage in the film industry, dismay in the film industry, and has led to further debate and discussion about the use of guns and the dangers therein during the course of making a film. I was actually on set of a film when the news broke. I'm not going to say what the set was, but there was a general air of disbelief amongst the crew that something like this could still happen in this day and age. So, I mean, what is your reaction to this horrible news and to the ongoing debate that has been raging ever since? Yeah, I, th- I think it's good and I think it's long overdue uh, to happen. I mean, you know, Helene's death is, a, is just a, such a horrific tragedy and I think it's kind of woken people up in a way. And and it's, you know, these are not the only cases. I think safety on a film set, first of all, I would say goes far beyond guns. You know, there was the criminal case a couple of years ago or a few years ago now about um a director who hadn't got the proper safety permits, and the um, the crew member who was, if you remember, on a mm-hmm. on a train track and mm-hmm. was was tragically killed on a train track. So there are lots of of cases where you know hungry, uh, driven you know, producers and and filmmakers will put people in these unsafe situations because they're so. They buy into this idea that the art is worth it, that we're all, we all have to be super dedicated, that you know you have to go above and beyond, or you don't you don't really care about your your art and your craft. And the thing is, people do that on sets every day. People do go above and beyond on sets 
all the time, but it should never be about putting yourself in an unsafe situation. And I think that is the line that certain film companies, producers, uh, directors, whoever, people in charge have allowed to happen um, over and over again in film history. And, you know, it's the it's the people further down the list who have who have borne the brunt of that traditionally. I think that, you know, for whatever else happens, that seems to be the case in, in, in all of these, you know, in all of these tragedies on film sets. So we have to get to a position where those in charge take more responsibility and we have to be more careful and, and you know, put more r- rules in place to protect people. From what I've read this week, and of course this is only, you know, the reading that I personally have, have seen, it is, there is two things you lose by using fake guns on set, completely fake guns that cannot shoot anything. Uh, you lose the muz- muzzle flash, which is the easiest and cheapest thing to add in post-production that it is imaginable to do. Um, and you also lose the kind of veracity of the recoil and the actor's mm-hmm. reaction to firing a gun, which can be taught to actors. They are very good, generally speaking, if they're in movies and they can probably handle faking recoil. And there's things like airsoft guns, which are completely safe to, you know, to have on set. And they, they, again, don't project anything and they can give you an element of that. So there are alternatives. And I think at this point, surely Hollywood has to move to those alternatives. I think the calls for getting rid of all, quote unquote, you know, live guns on set or hot guns, if you like, Mm. um, I think that time has come and and past come. And I think that conversation at least will go forward. Of course, this is, you know, rumbling along in the background is the continuing IATSE um, strike and and the the actions to try and generally improve crew safety and crew conditions on movie sets. And I think this is actually kind of an extension of the same conversation because we need people to be able to live their lives, to be able to rest, to be able to work without fear about how they're going to get home and where they're going to be put up for the night and if it's going to be 50 miles away and how they're going to get back to set on the next morning on three hours sleep. You know, we need people not to be worrying about that stuff. Um, people are dedicated to making films, but it shouldn't be at the cost of lives. And so hopefully, hopefully this whole conversation that something positive will come out of this just horrific, horrific tragedy. Look, the main thing about this is our thoughts have to go out f- first and foremost to Helena's family. Um, this, this is just an unspeakable tragedy, and and then just to everybody on set who who you know has has gone through this as with them and and you know been traumatized, I'm sure by it. It's it's a horrible, horrible thing to happen, and uh, our deepest sympathies to all those who who lost somebody close to them. Indeed, and obviously this is a situation that is still very much developing with an ongoing investigation, as I said earlier on, and it's certainly something we're going to be talking about a lot over the coming weeks. But as Helen said, our thoughts right now are with the families of Helena Hutchins and everybody who is affected by this awful tragedy on the set of Rust. In a way, it feels weird and almost disrespectful to gear shift now and to talk about something else and certainly something a little bit, well, actually a lot more upbeat. But just as this podcast was so epic that a second part was required, so too has it proved of Denny Villeneuve's Dune. Dune! Dune! Oh yeah, Dune! there they go. Dune! Dune! It was confirmed Dune! this week that the movie has made enough money at the box office worldwide following a very good $40 million opening weekend, especially considering the circumstances that we're in at the moment at the US box office, to persuade Legendary and Warner Brothers, who are the companies that are stumping up Dune cash, to greenlight Villeneuve's Dune Part 2, which will arrive in 2023. 
I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit anxious about this. Because, I mean, look, we've talked about this a lot. Like When they announced the film, I was like, this is going to make no money at all. It's going to die on its ass, and I'm going to love every second of the film, but it, no one's going to go and see it. Uh, and then I saw the film, I was like, this is completely uncommercial. It's been shot with an art house sensibility. No fucker's going to go and see it. And lo and behold, on the, one of the rare occasions, humanity surprised me by being their best selves. Everyone bought, like, 50 tickets. Everyone went and saw it. It's the greatest thing ever. You bankrupted yourself, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I personally bought 100,000 tickets to go and see Dune. Nearly. You think um, it's what uh, Timmy Two Meats was doing at Camden? <laughs> that's what he was, he was doing, like, yeah. yeah. He just went, I will buy out the 3.30 <laughs> performance. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's, I'm so pleased yeah. this is getting made. So pleased. I really did worry. And I, I yeah. thought maybe it would go to HBO Max if it didn't get theatrical, but I just thought that Denny Villeneuve wouldn't be happy with that. But yes, yeah. it's going to happen. All is right. So no spoilers for our spoiler interview of Dune, but Denis Villeneuve does talk a little bit about why he split the film where he does in terms of the book, um, what's still to come. There is a little bit more that happens sort of directly after this film, no spoilers, and then there's a little bit of a time jump mm. and then we kind of pick up the story a little bit later. So, But there's a reason that he split it where he did. There's a reason that he left a little bit of you know, this timeline, if you like, still to come. And then we'll we'll hop a little tiny bit in the future so we can we can you know get on with the story. But there's so much exciting stuff to come oh, because yeah. basically um, I'm not going to give any spoilers because I know people haven't seen the first part of Dune yet necessarily. But uh, let's say everything gets bigger and some some shit is going to go down. Not, not in that Jodorowsky yes. way. Some a some thousand s- people shitting. Some stuff is going to go down in terms of giant sandworms coming out of the desert. And shitting? Fighting, no, no shitting, no literal shitting, but I mean, presumably, but off camera, hopefully. Uh, but like people fighting, mysticism, magic, um, destiny. Sting in pants. No, well, not sting, but like possibly that character coming yep. into it. I mean, so much excitement stuff to come. I cannot wait. I am so excited that this is happening. As as a Dune uh, noob. A, noob. But a the Dune person noob. who gave it its five star MR yeah, rating. I mean, as a noob Jabbar. <laughs> <laughs> so much of my review, I, I kind of wrestled with it as I was writing it, going, I, this in itself was like a five star experience for me. I think it's incredibly well made. I think it's totally engrossing. It's really exciting. It's this huge scale. But not knowing what's coming next, like, can mm. I give this five stars in its own right? Ultimately, for me, it came down to the, the Fellowship of the Ring factor of. I think Fellowship is a five star film. Yeah. It just it leaves the story at a point, and I have to say again, no spoilers, but it reminded me where Dune leaves off. Reminded me of Fellowship, where you're like, okay, this is clearly not the full story, and you've got certain characters going to certain places, and mm-hmm. we just leave them going. Well, they're going somewhere next. Who knows? So now the fact that we get to pick up on that, and I'm going to find out has me very excited and also has me looking directly at James and Helen <laughs> saying now that all the nonsense that you've been chatting for a couple of years actually means something to me now that I that some of the phrases and things that you're saying have actual context and I'm, uh, previously it was all nonsense that could just wash off my back because yeah. I don't know what any of it means but now you're going to have to be so careful for the next well, couple of years he is the <laughs> the sleeper has awakened I will say, um, like, not to pimp ourselves, but if you're not signed up to our spoiler channel, do do join because our Dune spoiler, which is not up yet, but will be up. Maybe because we again. haven't recorded it. I know, but it'll be up at some point. <laughs> but like, Villeneuve does talk a little bit about, you know, he doesn't get into deep spoilers, obviously, for Dune Part 2 because that would be inappropriate. Mm. But he does kind of give you an idea of where his head is at. And it is it was very clear head to me. Head in the sand? 
I can I guess kind of but also metaphorically speaking not. Yeah, it's very clear to me that he has been thinking about this, he has been planning for it. You know, the fact that they're talking about a 2023 release date suggests to me that he's been very actively planning for it um, mm. and working with his screenwriter and his team to design what needs to be designed to to write what needs to be written and um, I think he's I think he's further along into pre-production than you might think. Um, for something that's just got a green light. So I think he's been making use of his time in lockdown to to kind of get this in a position where he can just go. So we're getting Dune part two. Yes, <laughs> yes indeed. And he's also said today that he hopes to make a third Dune movie uh, after Dune part two. Yeah, based on Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. Mm-hmm. So yes. so regardless, Dune part two will at least complete the, yeah. the, 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 yeah, the yeah. book Dune. Yeah. And, but then the actual story, the primary story, goes over three books, Dune, Dune Messiah, which is actually a really short book, and mm. then Children of Dune. Okay. If we only get Dune Part 2, again, no spoilers, sure. will we feel shortchanged yeah. at yeah, the yeah, end yeah, of Dune Part 2? It's a complete okay. story in yeah. and of itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's fine. Yeah. Last week, it was announced just after we had recorded the podcast that Emily Blunt is going to star alongside Killian Murphy in Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Mm. So that is now the official name of this. And this is, of course, going to be uh, focusing on Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, who was the bloke who basically helped invent or led the invention of the atomic bomb. Yeah. Naughty, naughty Bob Oppenheimer. So Emily Blunt is going to play his wife, who's presumably like, don't do not do that, Robert. <laughs> Have you thought about the repercussions? The wife role in a Christopher Nolan film. Golly. Hey now, come on, play nice. <laughs> Jeff Nichols. Speaking of, it's all Quiet Place related because they, of course, were in <laughs> Quiet Place Part 2 together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and Jeff Nichols is no longer going to direct the Quiet Place spin-off movie. Oh. Oh, that's a shame. He, he's he gone. He presumably made too much noise and they kicked him off the set. <laughs> uh, Paramount's aiming to find a new director quite soon, given the popularity of a Quiet Place series. It says here. All right. Ryan Gosling is going to play Ken, Margot Robbie's Barbie movie. So that's a thing that's happening. <laughs> I, I guess I guess that kind of fits. That I, works. I suppose, yeah. That works. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a, a, a sexy man. He's a very handsome man, yeah. Sexy man plays Ken. Yeah, I could see that. And uh, in other Ryan Gosling news, yeah. Derek C. in France is going to direct the Wolfman movie, which Ryan Gosling has been attached to like a limpet now for some considerable time. Welcome to the world of gods and monsters. Welcome to the world <laughs> of gods and monsters. I, 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 mm. Wolfman's happening, I guess. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sad that it's not Lee Wanell anymore. I have a lot of trust in Lee Wanell. And I mean, he's still involved on a producer level here. Um, so Derek Sam France must have been picked for a reason. He's um, a good director. He's, he's a yeah, very good director in his own right. But yeah, I, I think knowing how well conceived The Invisible Man was uh, and how much Lee Wanell brought to that, uh, the fact that it's not him directing this, oh, it's, it's it feels like a bit of a knock. But um, I'm still intrigued to see what they do with that character if they can do something uh, as smart with it as they did with Invisible Man. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, lots more casting news. Um, Brendan Fraser is going to be the, ba- the baddie they think in in Batgirl. Okay. So, it's a bit of a phrase on going on at the moment, would you say? <laughs> a bra- a Brendonnaissance. Bre- I don't know. He's in a lot of stuff at the moment. I'm just yeah, saying. Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm glad to see him back. I mean, we talked about The Mummy earlier, yeah. but one of the great films, one of the great thirst trap, I mean, performances. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's fun. I, I, I'm really happy to see him again. So, um, but God. yeah, he's, he's in um, 
uh, Killers of the Flower Moon as mm. well, and the new Darren Aronofsky. And so. Soderbergh's obviously one as well. Soderbergh, yeah. He's doing so. very well for himself. Yeah, fair play. We like Brendan Fraser. We're happy Absolutely with that. Yeah. Um, how do we feel about this Darth Vader news? What's the Darth so, Vader news? Well, well, um, we know that Hayden Christensen's going to be playing Darth Vader yeah. again in the Obi Wan Kenobi we do. TV series. But it's also been confirmed this week that he will be showing up in the Ahsoka Tano mm. Which series. we were discussing this in the office, the whole thing. It's just like, oh, you know, it's funny. We were saying, we were saying who's he going to be in Obi-Wan Kenobi? It's always going to be flashbacks. Who's he going to be in the Ahsoka movie? So, yes, he's aged two decades since he played that character. So we can only assume that there's going to be a lot of CG youth thing going on uh, for his appearances. Because otherwise, I'm not sure that works at all. I can only imagine he's going to be in the suit as Darth Vader. But then why have him? Like, just why have him? You could have anyone in that suit i don't know i, mean, I don't know it doesn't make any sense because you do you i mean because you don't need his voice and i just i like what does he what does he bring to that role if he's in the suit like literally but he wouldn't be he wouldn't be in the suit oh, maybe maybe it is de-aging maybe it is, maybe it is flashbacks i mean because he's he's aged very well you know so it's still been 20 years well, I, I, I know but you know there might be there might be something you can do i i, I don't know i genuinely i'm, I'm but then again in obi-wan kenobi Obviously, Obi Wan's going to be alive, yeah. So he could be Darth Vader in that, yeah, in the mm. actual suit. Mm. But the Ahsoka Tano one, well, he's you know he'd have yeah, to be a Force ghost, wouldn't he'd he? Be dead so, at that point. Yeah. So yeah, and then but also that the Force ghosts, you know, if we're going to be consistent, don't age. And he was a young Force ghost at the end of the special edition Return of the Jedi. Mm. I don't acknowledge that. So he, well, fair enough. <laughs> uh, or then maybe he'll just be Sebastian Stan, and we'll all be fine. And not Sebastian, Sebastian Stan. Stan. Sebastian Shaw. If he was Sebastian Stan, that would be a crossover I am not here for. Sebastian but Sebastian Stan Shaw, absolutely. Would be, obviously, Mark Hamill's Force would Ghost. Mark Hamill's Force Ghost, exactly. <laughs> and if they can bring back Sebastian Shaw, then okay. It's well, very yeah, complicated. It's very complicated. With but, or without yeah. eyebrows. We shall see. Tell your sister. You were right. You were Right. Have we heard about the Bill Murray? Ant yes, Man he's going to be in Quantumania. That blew my mind. This That's is Sonny Birch's dad. That's Phil oh I literally thought when I saw this headline this morning, I'm like, Chris is going to say that he's Sonny Birch's dad. I yeah. swear to God, Damn that was it. my first reaction. Um, but he has the right energy. He could he could rock those loafers. He absolutely could. He really, really could, because as we all know, the MCU is actually the story of Sonny Birch, and no. uh, this is just a way of further centering him right there in all our hearts. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think he's going to be playing himself, and it just, it's just <laughs> natural to me that Bill Murray actually exists in the quantum realm. That is where his natural state of being <laughs> is, out of space and time, being as lackadaisical as ever. That's why he's difficult to contact. Yeah, yeah. he has no phone, and he lives in the yeah. quantum realm. Yeah, the reception down there is terrible. Absolutely terrible. I, I unfortunately have to go because I have to go to a meeting. Yes. So you're going to have to lose me. Which you forgot about. Which I had forgotten about. I have to go for a meeting. So all I will simply say is I liked passing. I thought it was very good. 4-3 I'm not normally here for, but I think it works very well for that film. Uh, I found the I found Army of Thieves to be the least essential movie ever. I don't understand how a very minor... No movie is essential. <laughs> that's true. A very minor psychic character got an origin movie. But having said that, Matthias Schweighofer was fun. Right, good. Now fuck off. There we go. Thanks, That's my reviews. I'm okay. off. Bye. Bye, Jimbo. All right, now he's gone. Now we can really begin the show in earnest. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what was past, what's past this prologue, and we were just making... We hadn't even turned the microphones on, in fairness. <laughs> uh, okay, so the couple of last things to talk about in the movie news section. Mm. One is, of course, there was a big trailer this week, wasn't there? Lightyear. Yay! Yay! I haven't seen it. It's fun. Okay. It looks cute. They do do that thing that they do at the end of Age of Ultron and indeed the end of Fantastic Four, but we don't talk about that, where they have, they set up the line that you're expecting to hear and then they don't quite give you the line. Oh, 
Especially, but you notice because it's it's also Chris Evans doing it. So, you know, as Lightyear. Do you think he was wearing the Knives Out jumper while he was performing? Can oh you feel God. that in the voice performance? Oh my God. No, I think that would be inappropriate for this because, you know, simultaneously too cozy and too evil, you know, so he has to, he has to have a different energy as, as, as the real Lightyear. So this is the, this is the guy who inspired the toy. Is this, this is what we're getting, right? Yes. I believe so. Okay. And he's voiced by Chris Evans. And um, he seems to have a lot of kind of cross galaxy adventures. We're talking aliens. This is not Buzz Aldrin just like going to the moon and then coming straight back. Like this is a dude who goes through a kind of space Stargate portal thing and portals. Ah, oh my, my God. God, it's all coming back again. Anyway, um, he goes through portals and he goes to alien planets and he, he meets things and civilizations and has adventures. So um, it looks mega fun. And, you know, my, yes. my small nephew who is obsessed with Buzz Lightyear is going to just lose his mind when this comes out. It is an impressively way. weird way of continuing the Toy Story stuff. Like mm. I, I liked Toy Story 4, but didn't love Toy Story 4. Mm-hmm. But those films are so special to me. Uh, I love them mm. so much. I kind of applaud, look, if you're going to do that thing of, of slightly franchising stuff out, if you find a weird angle on it, as much as there's a big part of me going, I, what the hell is this movie and where has it come from? I, I'd kind of take this as a weird approach to, to spinning off more Toy Story stuff yeah. uh, than a just straight up Toy Story sequel. Yeah, I, 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 I get that. I feel like Pixar have kind of earned this at this point, obviously in the grand scheme of things because they are amazing and we love them, but also they have had a real run recently of completely original films, which for the most part I've really, really enjoyed. Having Onward and and Soul and uh, Luca and we've got Turning Red next year as well as this. Like We had a little while where it was kind of sequel after sequel uh, with Pixar, so it's been lovely to have a run of completely original stuff and I can't begrudge them doing a weird sort of spin-off of Toy Story in amongst all of these other original ideas that they've had going on lately. Mm-hmm. And it looks yeah. fun. It does look fun. Yeah. yeah. Good so. casting as well. Mm. Good stuff. Last thing we want to talk about before we get into our penultimate guest and then the movie reviews is the new issue of Empires out. Hooray! Hooray, hooray, hooray. It is new Empire Day as we're recording this very, very exciting. On the cover, a world-exclusive, and inside, in fact, a world-exclusive look at Spider-Man No Way Home, which is out in December. And on the cover, we have a brand new look at Spidey in a brand new suit, I believe never before seen. And inside, I spoke to John Watts, Kevin Feige, Amy Pascal, Tom Holland, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Zendaya for a big old deep dive into I Can't Tell You About That, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> which was a lot of fun. And uh, and so we got a big old deep dive into the movie, uh, which obviously is a very, very difficult movie for people who are making the movie to talk about right now because there's a lot of surprises that they want to preserve and they can't have interfering meddling journalists like me running around asking questions <laughs> that might spoil the whole thing. Hopefully it's a good read for you people uh, if you pick it up and, and have a look at it. And there are some things in there, very interesting tidbits that I won't give away. Uh, Tom Holland wasn't the usual spoiler Pez dispenser that he <laughs> that he can be, but he did hint and suggest and talk about some things. And uh, certainly it's a very, very fun movie to uh, to speculate about. And I cannot wait to see it if even half of the things that I suspect are in this movie 
are actually in this movie, then we're in for a good time. But yeah, I had a, I had a blast writing it. I hope you guys have a blast reading it as well. And uh, there's some amazing images in there of uh, unseen stuff of Doc Ock and and Spidey, and it's a it's a ton of fun. But there's other stuff inside the issue as well. I am led to believe. Yes, um, there's so much good stuff. There's in this there's uh, our feature on Spencer, the film by Princess Diana, um, uh, which talks to everybody involved in that and and breaks down the process. Uh, that got them to, you know, critical acclaim. Um, we've got the Cannes-winning Titan, and uh, Julia Decourneau discussing uh, her vision for that. Uh, also, I just want to say the opening spread of that Titan feature is absolutely oh, it's amazing. amazing. It's metal as hell. It is seriously metal. There's a piece on Paul Schrader, a piece on the Hallmark Channel, um, piece on Howard the Duck, which you do not see often enough. Or Again, the often. opening spread of the Howard the Duck feature mm. has been haunting in my nightmares more than any other <laughs> horror film, taking it back to part one of this podcast. Yes. Yeah, truly, truly terrifying stuff. Halle Berry talking about her directorial debut, Bruised. Um, Natalie Portman is the gods among us this issue. I mean, it's there's a lot going on, I have to say. That's a pretty packed, packed issue. It's a big old issue. There's loads of stuff inside it. There's looks at... Uh, Nightmare Alley, which is, of course, Guillermo del Toro's mm. new movie. There's looks at Hawkeye. Uh, there's good stuff in my section, but there's always good stuff in my section because my section is the best section and all of the sections should cower. Oh, my God. And, and bow before it. Uh, and that's the review section and I can't remember what's in it, but it's good stuff. Um, uh, naked. Naked. Oh, yeah, that's right. I spoke to uh, Mike Lee and David Thewlis because Naked, which is, uh, I think, the greatest of Mike Lee's movies, is getting a big old re-release and I spoke to the two of them on Zoom we talked to Malcolm McDowell about Clockwork Orange uh, we do an Angelina Jolie ranking we talked to Sun Kang and Justin Lin about Han's journey through the Fast Saga it's a broad church every month it's a broad church at Empire but uh, come come worship with us it is available right now in all good evil and virtual news agents and I cannot emphasize this enough pay our wages you absolute motherfuckers oh my god not the right attitude I'll never learn. <laughs> I will never learn. All right. Okay. We have time for two more guests and a reviews section. So Jonathan Majors. Jonathan Majors. We like Jonathan Majors. Uh, he was fantastic in The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. That seems to really put him on Hollywood's radar uh, in a big, big way. He is going to be part of the MCU. He showed up, of course, in Loki as... He Who Remains, and will be seen alongside Bill Murray in Ant-Man and the Wasp, <laughs> Quantumania, and if I'm right, quite a few other Marvel movies over the next few years as well as Kang the Conqueror. But he is currently the lead of James Samuel's fantastic Western, The Harder They Fall, which opened in cinemas last week. It's going to be on Netflix next week. So now it's a perfect time betwixt those two releases to uh, hear from Jonathan Majors. I caught up with him on Zoom a couple of weeks ago and we had a big old chat about a great many things as per usual, including, of course, The Harder They Fall and a blog called Kang. Here we go. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the star of The Harder They Fall, Mr. Jonathan Majors. How the devil are you, sir? Oh, man, I'm okay. I'm okay, how are you? I'm <laughs> good. I'm good. Congratulations on the film. Congratulations on on opening the the LFF. That's uh, what does that mean to you? That must be pretty special. It's um, it is. It's uh, it's funny. It, it, the festival is such a um, prestigious and particular one, and you know we've I've had I've had a film you know 
be at a festival, it's 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 the nature of the beast sometimes if you're lucky, but to have it premiere at such a festival and you know, f- for the character um and for the cast of this film to be on such a beautiful platform at such a beautiful time, you know, and telling this story, it's um uh, it's not lost on me the um the honor and uh, the privilege of it. So I'm excited for, for everybody to see it in this way, in this light. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's, it's such a fantastic cast and it's such a fantastic script. I, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a director make a debut that is this assured and this confident. And, you know, in your conversations with, with, with James, as he was, you know, sh- showing you the script, which I believe had all the songs, all the music already written into it as, as well. What was that life? You did you get the same vibe that this is a guy who really, seriously, truly is assured and knows what he's doing? I think there's a pattern emerging amongst um, really great uh, directors. Um, I saw it once. I did a film oh, a while back, um, uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and the director there, Joe Talbot, shot this short um, to show proof of concept in a way, or. Uh, 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 proof of dream, you know, proof of vision. Is you know, it was so great. Um, and it, it looked like a film; it was just shorter, you know. Um, um, and then we did the film, and then the same the same scenario was that with uh, James, uh, insofar that he had built this um, this other movie, uh, essentially, um, They Die by Dawn. Which had a Nat Love, which had a Stagecoach Mary. Uh, Stagecoach Mary is played by Erica Badu, actually, and yeah. Nat Love was played by uh, the late great and dear friend of mine, uh, Michael K. Williams. Um, so I actually looked at that and was like, okay, he's been after this for you know a hundred years. You know, if you ask him, I mean, he'd say it's his second film. You know what I mean? Um, but that said, uh, to answer the question, I mean. Yeah, I mean, to have such a clear vision, you know, to have such a, a steady hand, to have, as you said, the music laid in, you know, he had seen it, you know, he had seen this movie uh, in his head um, way before he, it even got to me, you know, so it felt um, it felt good to uh, get in there with him and just kind of try to help him manifest it, you know, the best way I, I could. Mm. And it's interesting, obviously, how much it expands on They Die by Dawn as well, and how, how different it feels. I mean, obviously, that's only a 50-minute, most short films are only 20. That's, that's a 50-minute short film. It's it's fairly complete in itself, but this is, yeah. a, this is a much richer, much deeper, and it, it doesn't feel like a remake of They Die by Dawn in any way, shape, no, or not form. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. It's a different world. You mm. know, it's, I mean, it's the same world, but a different story. You know what I mean? And the world is, as you say, what you're getting at, you know, it, we expand in the heart of the fall tremendously, tremendously. Um, that's all one event. You know, that's all, that's actually one act of a play, you know, uh, one act of a film, They Die by Dawn. Uh, the heart of the fall is, I mean, when it's all said and done, it's an epic, you know, it feels like an epic. Uh, it feels like a Star Wars or um, um, yeah, a Dune or, or what have you, you know. And it feels like it's introducing this incredible cast of of characters as well. And uh, mm. I was surprised to find that so many of them were, were real people. Uh, also, I mean, you know, Nat yeah. Love. I, I know that um, in your research for the role, that you 
you read his autobiography, which is available now on Kindle. If people want to go and read Matt Wicked. Love's autobiography, they can they can do it. They could pay two quid to read that. Um, and that that's kind of amazing that you know that that James is taking all these 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 figures, colossal figures from American history who've been overlooked in the past and maybe even erased in the past, and yeah. giving them this this platform, this this moment to shine. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you got Treasures Trudy Smith, you got Stagecoach Mary, you got Cuffy. I, I think, and people will find if they do research that Cuffy actually has the dopest backstory in a way. You know, I mean, she deserves her own her own two hours and ten minutes. You know, you know, yeah. for her her story and her life. You know, yeah. and that's something James set up. You know, I, I look I look forward to see what he wants to do with this. You know, New West as he calls it. You know, it's. It's going to be exciting. He's really set up all these characters and brought them to light in a way that I think people want to know more about them, you know, and I think the world that he's built um, since they die by dawn and now here, the harder they fall, can hold that, you know, can hold that. And what did you know going in? What did you know about Nat Love? What did you know about him, first of all, as a character in the screenplay, but then when you're putting flesh on the bones and you're, and you're reading more about the historical, the real guy, what did that do for you? Well, the, the interesting part about that is that autobiography, right? It's probably, I think, if I remember, it's like 70 pages. I mean, I read it a hundred times, you know, just on the way to work, just next, and just go back to it, you know? And one of the things about him is that he's so um, extraordinary, you know, what the way he writes about himself, it's, he he's his own myth. He's his own greatest fan in many ways, you know? Uh, he's also writing it in reflection, you know? So it, it feels it feels um, like a memory when you read it. You know, we knew he grew up in Tennessee and, and and then all these things, and it's interesting. But then when you look at the script, right? To me, I use the script as this is the this is the afterward, right? To his autobiography, he didn't write this part. This is the part he he, he was he was going to get to, but you know something came up, and so then you have to hardly fall. And, and it's a different backstory. It's a different mm-hmm. vibration of this fella, you know, and it's. The story, the origin story of him, of of that love is 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 different. You know, the trauma that he experiences as a child, you know. So. So, yeah, it's an amalgamation of, of the two of them. And I began to pull from you know what James was saying and then what the autobiography was saying. And if you know, ultimately we had to make the movie and, and we had to tell this. Um, the idea was to make, you know, a very real, honest, truthful human being, period, you know, mm. And it's going to be cinema. So, okay, let's let, let's do that. So you take these two and put them together, and and there he is. <laughs> there he is. And uh, uh, you mentioned there, you know, the late great Michael K. Williams as well, who played this this role in they day in they day by dawn. And did you have any conversations with him before going into this? You know, like you've done you've done this. You've worked with James. You played this character. Not really. I mean. I don't know. Like for me, it's it's such a private thing. You know, it's like someone asking you what you did or what you said in confession. It, it, it's so private, you know. And so I just watched it. I did watch it, you yeah. know, to go, OK, let's just see what's going on. But no, me and Mike had a. Uh, had a very intimate relationship as far as the work goes that, you know, what's understood need not be discussed. That was kind of one of our mottos, you know. And we understood the the transition of the role and what was happening, mm. and uh, it can be really uncomfortable sometimes, you know that that okay we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna play this role again you know and 
And we never even had to get to that. It was just, yeah, you did it. I'm going to do it now. And, you know, the idea was to, you know, I'll see you at the premiere, but. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I guess the idea as well down the line is that other people will be able to play in that love. And uh, yeah, it's funny. I mean, you must have listened to something I said yesterday. Cause that's what I was saying. Like, like that love is potentially like, you know, potentially like a bond. You know what I mean? Like the West is always going to be there. You know what I mean? Like the world is always going to be there and, 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 and potentially Nat Love is, you know, a Hamlet, an Othello, a Lear, you know, you get to play, you get to play them. You know, if you, if you've done the work or you, if it comes, if it lands on you, you get tapped by, I guess it would be James Samuel. <laughs> you get tapped by James Samuel, you know, and he goes, okay, you're not getting that love, you know? Um, uh, but uh, I'm 32 years old and I don't plan on going nowhere. So it'd be pretty <laughs> difficult to snatch it from me. I know we've only got a few minutes left, but I, I wanted to ask you about, because you've had an incredible last couple of years um, in terms of your career. And and this year was was no exception to that. I, w- I wanted to talk very briefly about your uh, am- uh, amazing appearance as He Who Remains in that final episode of, of Loki. Um, because I spoke to, I've spoken to pretty much everybody who was involved in that episode, whether it's, you know, Kate Heron or Michael or, or Tom, um, about how you came in with these incredible 20 minute monologues and just <laughs> blew everybody away. And I wanted to ask what that experience was like for you from, from your POV. I, I, you know, I guess the cool part about that moment is that I was shooting the heart of they fall at the same time. And, uh, me and my brother flew from, like, we were just like, we just gotta go. We just gotta go. You know what I mean? And so, um, we flew to Atlanta to do it. And I mean, it was a dream. I mean, it was one of those things like there's moments right now we're kind of chilling. Right. So like we're moving at like the speed of communication. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and speed of thought. I am, which is why I'm, I'm talking so much and, and moving so slow, et cetera. Right. He who rem- and, and some characters live in that world. Right. He who remains actually moved at the speed of survival. Right. Which is actually not something you see often. You know what I mean? Like moving at the speed of survival really makes you lean in, you know, and in order to get yourself to that position, to that place internally, you really got to you really got to go some places. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you know, what I mean, and then put a, you know, put a put a lid on it, you know, as it were. I'm just talking, you know, what it was like for me, you know, of course. And when I got there, you know, I'd done all the work I, I could, you know, but. I got to talk. I got to say it to them. I had not been in the space and it was, it was survive. It was getting there and survive, which is funny because he who remains is, is, you know, what is he trying to do? Is he trying to survive or is he trying to, he's trying to achieve an objective, right? Which is survival in a way. And that's what he's doing with Sylvia and Loki at 110%. You know, um, I had a ball and, and the, the community, that was around us from the grips to the camera operator, to Kate, uh, to Kevin Wright, one of our producers. Mm. I had no idea what they were thinking when I was doing it. I had no time to think about what they were thinking. You know what I mean? Like I remember we were rehearsing and and I, I just kept saying to Kate, I said, so you, what do you want to rehearse? Like, you want to rehearse the whole thing or do you want to rehearse the, and then fucking Tom Hendelson said, Oh yeah, we'll do the whole thing. (laughs) And I was like, if you can break it up, you know what I'm saying? Like we'll do the whole thing. And Tom, uh, Tom said that he said, and Tom just had this, had so much confidence 
you know, in it felt like he had so much confidence in me that I was going to be able to take this whole chunk in, in one go. I said, all right, yeah, yeah, let's do it. That's all I needed to know. I walked off. <laughs> I think I was running in circles, uh, which I do often, you know, in general, just running in circles, panting, just like, you know, just getting to that, getting to that pitch, you know, and then the brain fires off and, the, and then you just go. And it was, it was Tom and it was uh, Sylvie that, that allowed it, that allowed me to continue to play and, 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 and move through it. And, um, I don't, I don't mind you bringing it up because it was such a um, incredible journey, you know, and mm-hmm. such a de- such a departure from uh, Nat Love, you know, uh, and we still had, you know, um, uh, maybe three more weeks to shoot the harder they fall. And so we go, boom, you do that. And you it was it was probably one of the most uh, exciting times of my career thus far. I just one last quick uh, thing about that. And so. Do you feel then that that experience prepped you for the rest of your MCU experience? Or do you feel that, you know, going into Kang, you're starting with a clean slate, essentially? Well, it's little by little and bit by bit. And, you know, the most important thing is like, you know, you got to eat what's on your eat what's on your plate, you know? And so um, as wonderful as that experience was, um, expectations you know, we just kill things, you know? So, um, I mean, we're in London now, we're getting it done now, you know, and, uh, it's, it's the same thing. Just start, start with zero and take it from there. Jonathan Majors, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Likewise, my brother, get some, get, get some, uh, what do they call it? Elderberry. Get some elderberry. Elderberry. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try that. I will try chicken soup. I'm going to try everything. I'm going to throw the whole kit and caboodle at this, but thanks. Thanks again. Man, see you soon. Okay, so that was Jonathan Majors and The Heart of the Fall is out next week on Netflix. And we talked about it briefly last week, but we'll be getting into it properly on next week's show. But it is now time to delve deep into the movies that are available for you to watch in your multiplex with Timmy Two Meets or your sofaplex. If he is there as well, if he somehow Timothy Chalamet has turned up at your house and wants to watch any of these movies, well, I think the only one he can watch is Passing an Army of Thieves. Bad luck, Timmy! Foiled again. Anyway, there are loads of movies out this week. And I would say the biggest, the most anticipated, is Last Night in Soho, the return of Edgar Wright to the director's chair, Benjamin. So, Last Night in Soho is Edgar Wright's going more or less straight up sort of horror, psychological horror, psychological thriller territory without the laughs that he brought to something like Shaun of the Dead. Uh, Although I will say there are a couple of chuckly Mm. moments in this one, but it is a more straight up, less comedic piece from Edgar Wright. Uh, And this is a sort of, I think we can say it's a dual timeline story, primarily centering around Eloise, who's a character played by Thomas and Mackenzie from from Jojo Rabbit, uh, who is a young fashion student who uh, moves to London, uh, has lived in the countryside, dreamt of going to fashion school. Uh, she achieves that dream. She moves to London, and it seems like that she may be able to sense things that other people can't sense. Uh, and when she arrives in London, she finds herself connected to the past. The era that she loves and that she draws her fashion inspiration from is the 1960s. And she soon starts dreaming about this character, uh, Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who was a singer in the 1960s. uh, And they share this connection 
And I think that's all I'm going to say plot-wise because there's maybe a bit more that they show in some of the trailers mm-hmm. that I don't think should be in the trailers. Um, but, <laughs> but let's say this... But if you have seen the trailer, I would say don't despair because it's not all entirely what you think you're seeing. There's a bit of trickiness, I think, yeah. in some of the trailers. There are tricks and turns, mm. uh, twists and turns here that you probably won't see coming. Um, and for the most part, I really loved this movie. Like I would say uh, uh, more or less the two th- first two-thirds of this film for me is absolutely some of the best stuff Edgar Wright has ever done. Uh, this time he's co-writing with Christy wilson Cairns, mm. who you heard in part one. It gave me that feeling uh, that I had watching Knives Out. When you see someone like Ryan Johnson, who has a knowledge of genre and a knowledge exactly of their craft and everything they're doing to make you feel exactly what they want you to feel. And I was so swept up uh, in this film. There are some absolutely gorgeous sequences, really. Uh, you can feel Edgar Wright pushing at the boundaries of what he's able to do and what he's done in his previous work. There are so many sequences here where you're watching it and for the most part, you're really caught up in the moment. But there's also a part of you going, how the bloody hell did you do this? That's mm. flipping amazing. <laughs> um Really brilliant performances from uh, Thomas and Mackenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy. I thought they they have to do some very clever, tricksy stuff between them, uh, where even though they're in sort of separate separate time zones, they are maybe inhabiting similar spaces. Uh, You also have Matt Smith in this playing uh, Jack, who is Sandy's uh, manager of sorts. Who uh, is uh, Matt Smith? Post Doctor Who has just gone on to play absolute bellends. <laughs> he <laughs> continues that here, um, and he's very uh, he's very good at portraying that. I have to say, I did overall really enjoy this film, but I, I think in my head, I won't say what it is for spoilery reasons. But there is a specific point in this film where, for the first two thirds, like I said, I felt fully in Edgar Wright's hands and Christy Wilson Cairns's hands and uh, I was like yes take me on the journey that you're taking me on and it felt like everything was leading it was very very carefully considered and and leading in a very specific direction and there is a point in my head that I can pinpoint that for me is when suddenly many avenues are open and I could feel the film maybe picking some avenues or like sort of twisting and turning and, and not quite having that sense of propulsion or direction that it had in the first two thirds, there are some elements uh, in that final third when when things shift a bit um, that didn't quite work for me on a visual level. That did actually remind me of of elements from the Cornetto trilogy films that didn't quite work in the way that I think they were supposed to. I feel quite hardened when it comes to horror stuff. It, like I said earlier on in the podcast, it takes a lot to spook me. And I thought there were lots of really interesting ideas and incredible sequences here. I don't think I was particularly scared watching the film, but I was really, really overwhelmed uh, for the vast majority of it by the filmmaking craft, by everything that Wright does as a filmmaker. I think it's really interesting that he, on the one hand, isn't quite doing as many of the Edgar Wright tricks, no, not but all. you can mm. still feel those in moments. Some of the kind of uh, crash edits and uh, the needle drops and all those things that you associate with his mm. filmmaking. There are elements of it there, but it's really interesting seeing him kind of temper some of those instincts and lean into some of the most beautiful filmmaking he's ever done. I'm still unpacking the sort of final reels of this film. Again, I will not go into anything on that front. There is some stuff that it, it just, I, I haven't quite worked out my own feelings about it. And I think there are points where maybe the film hasn't quite worked out as cleanly as it did earlier on what that final act is doing or quite what it wants to say. But it's stayed with me since I've seen it. And um, I would say if you're looking for something to see, 
over the Halloween weekend and you want to see something that is that is fun, that is propulsive, that is everything you know an Edgar Wright film to be, um, that has some incredible, incredible sequences and that will get you all talking as you leave the cinema, this is it. I really liked it. I really thought it was bold and different and, like you say, like... He's completely changed his filmmaking style to a large, large degree for this. I think he still has the same strengths, but I think he's he's pulled back on a lot of stuff that we maybe expect from him. The comedy as well as the um, some of the the filmmaking editing, you know, tricks that he has used in the past, and and really drawn just really deeply from like sixties filmmaking and entire kind of genres that we haven't seen him kind of hark to before. Fantastic performances as well from Taylor Joy and, and uh, Mackenzie. Love them. Absolutely love them. Also, it was just really pleasing to see this get London so right. Because the geography is even right, pretty the much. The geography and the oh tone God. and the feel like um, uh, Edgar clearly loves Soho, has spent so much time in Soho and not just spent time there, but spent time thinking about Soho. And so I guess there's a particular extra thrill that for us, a lot of the the film stuff that we engage in um things like screenings and, mm. and where the studios are based is around soho we have walked those streets but seeing you used to seeing uh cities in films where they've they jump from one location to the other and you think how did they get there but this uses the location and the geography quite specifically mm. it conjures that double-edged feeling of soho as on the one hand one of the most exciting buzziest parts of central london and also a slightly scuzzy place that you maybe don't always want to be uh, kind night, of later yeah. in the <laughs> evening all the kind of neon lit streets and stuff it gets that really right also chung hoon chung who is the mm. cinematographer on this one who shot old boy for park chan wook is an amazing cinematographer and he captures all that beautiful light and that soaks in that environment so there's a clear love but conflicted love with this area that feels kind of so intrinsically linked to the film itself and and as somebody who has walked around those areas i, I felt that coming through as i watched the yeah, film so, sort of uh, the, the power and the limitations of nostalgia i think are a really big big theme in this film so yeah. At the end of it, I was like, do I want to go and have a drink in Soho right now? Or do I definitely not? I felt both of those things equally. <laughs> um I'm not gonna get too much into it into it here. We are gonna be doing a spoiler special for it, as I said. There's great performances all the way through, mm-hmm. as Helen said. Uh Anya Taylor Joy. <laughs> no I mean, shock yeah. to say this, you know, she's got it. Whatever it is, the X Factor. Uh, and she's tremendous as Sandy. Uh, I love the the timey wimey stuff. Mm-hmm. The, um, the the distinction between both periods is a meticulously designed film. It did unsettle me, Ben. Uh, there are things that appear in this movie that I thought were pure nightmare fuel. Uh, there are there's a lot of interesting stuff to get into. Mm. And we'll get into it in the spoiler special in terms of the movies. Um, in terms of the movie operating as a feminist movie, and in terms of you know because this is Edgar Wright's first female lead yep uh, female leads in fact uh, and there's an awful lot it has to say about the um, trials and uh, and, and uh, rigors of uh, that women undergo both in the 60s and in the modern world especially I mean, perhaps those chasing stardom as well how London would chew people up and spit them out uh, and the soundtrack is phenomenal no. I mean my god and we haven't mentioned uh, Diana Rigg but we should no. say like uh, basically, this is a, a you know this is a, a, a swan song that is worthy of her, and there can be there can be few bits of higher compliment than that, higher praise than that. 
Indeed. Uh, so four stars then for last night in Soho. And there'll be more content coming your way about that movie in the next couple of weeks. Next up, Health Bells. Mm. Rebecca Hall's directorial debut passing. Now, we spoke to Rebecca Hall on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. in, a, in a one guest episode. Do you remember that? The, the heady days of having just a single guest on an episode. <laughs> uh, so Rebecca Hall has been a, a tremendous actress for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And she's been soaking up all sorts. Her dad, of course, was Sir Peter Hall. He knows yeah. he knew a thing or two about directing. Uh, and it's clear after watching Passing, yeah. which is on Netflix this week, that um, so does Rebecca. Yeah, seriously, this is this is a very, very impressive debut. It's based on the 1929 novel of the same name by Nella Larson. And it is the story of two um, black women in the US in the 1920s. Essentially, they kind of have a choice uh, to an extent. So uh, Claire Ruth Negger's character is passing as white. And she is married to a white man and uh, who is not aware of her racial background. Um, her school friend, her, her childhood friend, Tessa Thompson, Irene, is married to a black man and has, you know, darker skinned sons and is living her life in Harlem as a black woman. And it's really, uh, you know, it, it's, it sets up basically this is um, the contrast in their lives, the limitations that both have as a result of their essentially chosen race to a degree, but certainly as as a result of their circumstances, as, as a result of the life that they're living in. And in particular, the way that Claire feels alienated from her her roots, her reality, her her own people, the, I think, pressure and the tension she faces, the worry that her husband, who's played by Alexander Skarsgård as not a nice man, will figure out uh, the, the truth of her her identity but equally you know the the, the, the shortcomings that, that Irene faces and the, the real discrimination and the real fear that she has for her sons and so it's a, it's a fa- fascinating horrifying difficult subject for drama um I think it's something close to Rebecca Hall's heart um she has uh, her, her mother was biracial and her, and she's she's kind of dealt with that in her own family background and learned about that from her own family. But she she has obviously involved her leading ladies very closely. It's very sensitively handled. And and it's really, you know, you can see the film as, as it goes on just trying to get to grips with this this kind of torn identity and, and all of the shit around around race, around racism, around, you know, the way that society treats women. Sexism, I would say as well, plays a, plays a major role in in their circumstances and their limitations and the choices they have to make. I just find it fascinating. I think it's fantastic performances from both leads, particularly maybe Ruth Negga, who has a really difficult role to play and, and manages to say a lot in some scenes without opening her mouth. I mean, she's astonishing. Um, but Tessa Thompson, you know, that, that role's maybe a little bit less showy at times, but, you know, in her silences and in her the moments where she withdraws from her husband and her family, you can kind of sense how difficult she finds elements of her life you know and, and how difficult and how how much Claire being around Ruth Negga's character being around has really unsettled her and made her very uh, self-conscious and also made her very unhappy and threatened at times as well so yeah it's a fascinating multi-layered film I think it's really really smartly handled beautifully shot in black and white as well a very very good supporting cast I haven't even mentioned uh, Andre Holland Bill Camper in there as well really good people but um but I think it's really about the, the two leading ladies and I thought they were great. Yeah, not much more to add to that, really. Um, yeah, you've nailed it. You have absolutely nailed it. Four stars, I believe, we gave this one. We did, yeah. Four stars for that. It is fantastic. A poised, controlled, very tastefully directed. Great stuff. Great stuff indeed. Four stars then for passing. 
we're in the end game now. It's Halloween, so Last Night in Soho is a horror film, but it's also you know it's one of those psychological thriller type horror films. So yeah, there's a bit of there's, there's a bit of murder, 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 murder. There's a bit of murder in it. There's a little bit of you know a little bit of blood. There's a little bit of nightmare fuel in that. But if you want like a big old jump scary booing right in your face horror film this weekend, then Antlers might be the movie of choice for you. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I'm interested in how this film's been presented because it absolutely is what you said. It is a big monster movie with some boo, scary moments in it. Um, I think a lot of the marketing around this film, some of the trailers, set you up on a, oh, strap yourselves in, crazy monster ride movie. And I think what the film actually is, is quite a bit more... Uh, somber and sober than mm-hmm. that, while also containing, as you say, all the booze and all of the all of the, <laughs> the, the, the booze, booze spelled both b o o s and there's a fair amount of booze b o o s e d as well in the movie. Yeah, we, we should say, <laughs> um, and we should say that this is a uh, Scott Cooper. So if you know Scott Cooper's work, then you will absolutely then have glommed onto what Ben was saying about how deliberate this movie is and how glacially paced in a way it is. Uh, and how it is about atmosphere as well. But there are shocks. There are shocks in there as well. And a big, uh, let's be honest, let's not be around the bush, a big old deer monster. Yes, a big old <laughs> spiky monster. Um, so the film primarily concerns, uh, Kerry Russell plays a school teacher uh, called Julia, who um, starts to think that one of the pupils at her school um, might be experiencing abuse at home. It's this little kid, Lucas, played by Jeremy T. Thomas, who I think is really, really good in this film. He's just this little slip of a thing who just has these kind of hallmark signs of maybe things are happening at home that he's dealing with a, a lot. Uh, he lives in this small town in Oregon. It's up in kind of that northwest uh, part of the USA. This town that's been struck by, uh, well, loss of industry, really, a a very troubled town. Uh, This poor little kid going through a lot and she sees him and thinks there's something happening at home because she also has stuff in her past that she recognises in him. Uh, Not to go into too much, but the things that... Uh, Lucas actually is dealing with uh, involving his dad are more monstrous uh, and he's put in some very very difficult positions where he's being both kind of carer but also he's trying to protect himself Um, and what unfolds is this kind of quite neatly interwoven sort of tapestry of real life hardships and abuse and neglect and alcoholism and also that woven into this kind of monster metaphor that gives you those gory shocks that gives you those quite visceral moments i think there's some really good gruey gore uh, in this mm-hmm. um i think it's really really beautifully shot it has some kind of uh, the, it, i feel like it shows you just enough there is I think it just it gives you what you need to be able to picture enough in your mind's eye. It doesn't hold back too much, but it also doesn't kind of reveal your monsteriness kind of straight from the off. I think it gives you uh, uh, stuff that kind of plays in your head as much as it does on the screen. I think the issue for me with this film is that the amount of metaphors that it's trying to kind of <laughs> weave in it it's never metaphor I didn't like <laughs> yeah and and there are two real clear threads in this that are both worthy of of exploration that both kind of feature in the film but they and and they sort of should link together but they don't quite and i feel like they're sort of at war with each other so one of them 
is this idea of of abuse and neglect as sort of a uh, as a monster that you're having to deal with at home there is also an element of a very specific piece of native american folklore and at the same time it's trying to deal with these colonialist themes of hey don't fucking steal people's land yo mm. And the way that it tries to play both of those out simultaneously means, I think, especially the Native American folklore stuff doesn't quite get the nuance of the breathing room that it needs alongside effectively a very white town experiencing this kind of monster situation. Individually, those threads make sense, but it never quite comes together as a whole uh, through the course of the film, which is not that long. It's like just over 90 minutes. It kind of, it's nice to see a film like this that doesn't overextend itself. I do think it does the monster stuff really well. I think the design of it is great. Like I said, you see just enough of it. Some of the effects and the the kind of monster sequences uh, are pretty intense. Um, even as somebody, like I said, who's fairly desensitized, I think especially seeing this in the cinema with a packed crowd, uh, you would get people going, oh, oh my God, no. And that's what you want from a sort of spooky Halloween film. Uh, <laughs> I, I should also say that it's produced by Guillermo del Toro, and I think it does have, in, in terms of the feel of it, obviously you were saying Scott Cooper is a director, mm. has that kind of slow burn approach. It's very serious and quite somber. At the same time, that I think there's a reasonable amount of Stephen King in here with this little kid yeah. and supernatural elements and bits of Native American folklore mm-hmm. and, and what's happening in American small towns. At the same time, I think there is a reasonable amount of Del Toro in here as well with a, a little kid experiencing the hardships of the world through a supernatural lens as we were talking about Pan's Labyrinth earlier on, you think about the start of Crimson Peak, even though the stuff that Del Toro has produced like Mama, the Andy Muschietti film, yep. is all about yeah kids seeing sort of horrible situations through, through supernaturalism yep. and that comes into play here as well. So I think it's a nice blend of some familiar kind of horror elements that just tries to do a bit too much or, and doesn't quite bring it all together. But the monster stuff is good. And if you want to go and see mm. a kind of slightly more dour film than the trailers make it appear, but yeah, a it's big not, it's full not on monster ride. movie um, that, that does, especially towards the end, get pretty gory and gooey, um, Antlers will give you that. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Uh, as I just said, it's not a thrill ride uh, in that way. It's not a roller coaster. There are jump scares, but it is, as you say, it's very somber, it's very dour. Uh, it's it's wreathed in it's almost monochromatic in terms of its palette, uh, but again, really good performances. And I'd heard I'd heard negative things about this going into seeing it, and um, I was pleasantly surprised, mm. pleasantly surprised. Uh, and I think Scott Cooper's a really interesting director. And um, you know, Hostiles is fantastic. Out of Hostiles the furnace, is great. Yeah, yeah. and um, there's a there's a lot of echoes of those movies in this one. Yeah, I think you can maybe see all three of them. Uh, weirdly enough, we are doing a spoiler special for this. I had a very interesting and very candid chat with Scott Cooper the other day on Zoom, which will be uh, forming part of our spoiler special. So that'll be out in a couple of weeks' time, along with the spoiler special for Last Night in Soho. General rule of thumb for spoiler specials, if you're a subscriber, is that the spoiler special for a film will drop round about two weeks or so after it opens in the States. Not okay. necessarily here, but in the States. Uh, but there you go. Antlers, three stars for that one. Uh, ben uh, Ben administered three stars. You wrote that yourself? Yep, I wrote this there one myself. Go. I stand by my three stars. <laughs> well done, Wow, ben. that's there brave. Um, I don't know if we have an official Empire review yet for Army of Thieves, but we'll talk about it anyway. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll have a, a chit-chat about it. So Army of Thieves, you may be thinking, okay, so this is a prequel to Army of the Dead. So this is going to be filled with zombies and it's going to be a big old horror film just in time for Halloween, which is why Netflix have dropped it now on October 29th. 
Helen, that's not what it is. Nope. This is a kind of, um, well, it's a heist movie. And if anything, it's closer to a rom-com than a horror movie. Yep. Um, although I wouldn't personally describe it as a rom-com, I would go for heist. So the idea is that uh, Matthias uh, Schweighofer, well, he was Ludwig Dieter when we yes. met him in Army of the Dead. We learn he had a different name. He was born with a different name. So when we meet him in this, he is a Sebastian. Um, he is working in a bank. He is bored. Um, and he's, he fills his evenings making little YouTube clips that literally no one watches about <laughs> interesting safes and interesting ways to pick locks and things like that. Literally no one watches until one day one person watches one of his videos about a master safe designer who made these four safes based on the ring cycle. Not the Lord of the Rings, the ring cycle that inspired them. And wouldn't you know it, Natalie Emmanuel's Gwen sees this and invites him to a safe cracking competition. Um, And on the back of that, he is invited along to join her gang of thieves and break into these mythical safes, just for lols, really. I mean, there's money in them and they're going to steal the money, but like only just to show that they were there. Like, they don't really care about that. It's more about... Why do you climb Everest? Exactly. Exactly that. So anyway, he he joins her 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 gang and goes with them. I think my biggest issue with this, um, well, I have a couple of issues. I had a lot of fun. I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it more than Army of the Dead because, you know, as as discussed, I, I object to them breaking the rules of zombies in that. And they do not break the rules of safe cracking in this um, unless you count having a CG safe that, you know, that the camera keeps zooming into to show us how clever and how complicated it is. But but this is generally fun. And Sebastian slash Ludwig is a very fun character to to hang out with. I enjoyed that. Um, my two slight concerns with it are, number one, I think it's a bit too long. It's over two hours. And I kind of feel like this probably should have topped out at about the 90 minute mark and I would have been a little bit happier. And number two, the 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 gang of the thieves are not as fun as I wanted them to be. The interaction isn't as as kind of inspired. You've got Stuart Martin in there as Brad Cage, which is a deliberately ridiculous name. And he is kind of an evil himbo Hugh Jackman. And and there's there's something there, but it doesn't it didn't quite take off the way I kind of wanted to. It wasn't quite as as there wasn't quite enough friction or the, not the right friction in the relationships. Do you know what I mean? And I just wanted there to be a little bit more kind of interplay and a little bit more silliness, maybe into in in the gang yeah. themselves. I, I think the one who disappointed me from the gang was Gus Khan because mm. he's not given enough to do. No, he, he does need be, more to he do. Can he's be very funny, funny. Yeah. and. He perhaps needed more of a chance to shine, but I, I liked I liked Stuart Martin. I liked uh, Ruby Ophi, but for me, I thought this I I was utterly charmed by this movie. I think it's a really interesting blend. I would say it's it's as much of a rom com as it is a heist movie. Mm. I think that's kind of the idea of these movies that they they take genres, they smoosh them together, and they make their own thing. So it's a heist com. It's a rom heist. I don't know what the hell you would call it, but it's uh, and I did I did buy into the central relationship. The you know there's a love triangle going on there between. Uh, Sebastian and Gwendolyn uh, and uh, Brad Cage. Brad. It probably didn't have quite the budget to be going for the sort of Fast and Furious type interplay that no, I think it was no. maybe going for. Yeah. Um, but who knows if there's further sequels, they may be able to up the ante a little bit. But I enjoyed the, the safe cracking scenes. He's fun to spend time with. Mm. And every now and again, there'd be like a little reminder that Zombies there's a zombie exist. apocalypse yeah. going yeah. on. But don't don't go into this expecting a proper Army of the Dead prequel. This yeah. is more about the character than the situation. Absolutely. If you, if you like the character, then you'll have a great time. Mm. If you didn't like the character in Army of the Dead, then you're shit out of luck. <laughs>
as I say, we don't have an official Empire review for this. I thought I, I had a good time with it. Yeah. I would go four stars, but I think I'd you're maybe for, in the three. I'd, I'd be, uh, but like a like a solid three, not like a you know like shaky a high three. three. Like like solid, a, I'd be like a like high a mid- three. Yeah. Okay. I'd be <laughs> that. low yeah. four. Yeah, that's that's I fine. I wouldn't go low four, but I, oh, okay. I'd go very high for, high three. Yeah. All right. So put the two together. Five stars. Five stars <laughs> then for Army of Thieves. And um, you think that would be it for this week's mass mammoth. Mammoth, <laughs> energy draining, energy sapping edition of the Empire Podcast. Uh, but no, we have one more guest. We have <gasps> one more guest, folks. Now and again, we do bring you an extended excerpt from a spoiler special interview. And it's been two weeks since Venom Let There Be Carnage uh, opened in this country and almost four weeks since the movie opened in the States. So our spoiler special for that will be up very, very soon. Maybe even by the time you listen to this, maybe not. We shall see. Uh, but I've decided to bring you an extended glimpse at the Andy Circus interview that I did in person, no less, for Phenom Let There Be Carnage. Uh, so you can hear about 15 minutes or so of that interview. I will say, of course, almost goes without saying, but I feel I need to say it anyway. This is a spoiler special chat. So if you haven't seen Phenom Let There Be Carnage, then don't listen to it. As far as you're concerned, the podcast is now over. You can turn it off, throw your phone at the Thames, do whatever it is you do, do at that. the end of a podcast. Just walk away from your phone, just leave it in the middle of the road, no. let a car run over it, do whatever Mm-mm. it is you do. But if you do want to hear some more, then go and listen to this. It's me talking to Andy Circus. Spoilers abound. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on this Venom Let There Be Carnage spoiler special by the film's director, Mr. Andy Circus. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. <laughs> Thank you very much. How are you? I'm feeling really, really good. I yeah. mean, you know, the... You What's know, it like being back on the road? Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I might do a little tour of uh, room 125, then I might go to 127 oh, later on, 129, and just, you know... Like, yeah, old times. Thank you, hotel. I won't be in the hotel, but, you know, thank you, good night. It's been, it's been really interesting. Uh, as we were just saying, this is my... Uh, Second in-person interview. What about you? How, have you done a, a bunch today? Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's still kind of getting back into the swing of it and and thinking, oh yeah, I've got to actually make sense here and talk talk about the film like I know what I'm talking about. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's it, it is weird now coming to, to actually. I can't believe I'm actually talking about it because it's actually coming out. Quite frankly, yeah. I, I, we never thought we'd see the day, and now and now it's kind of the, the date was then, and now it's going, and now then in literally in the last couple of days it's brought forward for the for the US release. So yeah, it's like, I saw that, which is a that's a very venom thing to do to keep very, guessing very about the release date with the release date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like I will have October first now. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. felt, it felt a little bit like that. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. But because Andy, this is a spoiler special, we can get into it right from the off. And I always Excellent. like to ask the big questions, the things that'll be on everybody's lips. Yes, um, Reese Shearsmith. Yes. Popping up at the end there oh, as, as the priest. Yes. Uh, uh, well, Reese and I go way back yep. uh, to the days when we've met on The Cottage by Paul Andrew Williams. Um, He's got a new film coming out soon, for, uh, which looks fantastic. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's called Bull. It looks, looks oh, I think, oh, great. properly gnarly. Oh, properly excellent. Dark. Oh, I can't wait to see yeah. that. I mean, he's such a great filmmaker. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Reese bless, came came on board to do it. And, and uh, well, you've, you've seen you've seen the, 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 the fruits of his labour. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was he on for a couple of days? Was it just yeah, basically, yeah, you know, he, I need a priest, it, it Reese. It was just like, Reese, please come and do this. I think you'll have fun. And he did. No, he was on for a few days, actually, because, of course, in those those things are never easy. Yeah. Uh, lots of harness work, lots of very tight harness work. You know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he got swung around all over the place. Um, but he was so game. And, yeah. and, and it's brilliant. Brilliant. 
come on down, Reese. You're going to get your head bitten off. Yeah. It's going to be a, it's yeah, going to be a lot you, of fun. You know, what's not to like? You know? What's not to like, precisely. And uh, we were just talking there before we pressed record about how you came on relatively late in the process. The train was already moving, I, I guess. Is, would, would that be a fair way to, to describe it? I, I guess, um, yeah. I mean, look, uh, the, the, the way it happened was... Um, I mean, I got a call out of the blue from from Tom Hardy, and he said, look, "I mean, and we'd actually to just wind back yeah, a few years ago." Tom Tom called me up and said, "Look, Andy, I, 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 and we've been sort of circling each other, and we've wanted to work with each other for many years, and and you know, there was a possibility that it was going to be a film that I was directing, and then and and then we decided we were going to we talked originally about doing a film about the Wright brothers playing playing the Wright brothers together, you know. So we've we've been circling each other. We kept bumping into each other, oddly enough, um, at the Nutcracker every year when we used to at the at the Royal National." <laughs> ballet and he'd be there on his own pretty much I think um, I seem to remember and I'd be there with with, with Lorraine and, and, and the kids and he'd be like Tom here we are again and, and it turns out that he wanted to play the Rat King in the Nutcracker do something like that Amazing. Okay. so that's so that's how we sort of started circling each other and then and then he uh, yeah a few years ago before Venom 1 he phoned up and said oh, Andy I want, I want to talk to you about motion capture performance capture and you know I'm doing this Marvel film and I'm thinking of you know how I'm going to get into the physicality of the role and all the rest of it anyway and I said come down to the Imaginarium you can play around with some different avatars you can jump in their skin and feel out, see how mm. it feels eventually that never happened and I thought oh well it's gone away then Venom I saw Venom 1 come out and, and I thought oh that must have been the film he was talking about and then cut to two years later and he says look he just rings me up out of the blue and says Andy I really want to chuck your hat in the ring for directing the second one so so I said well, yeah I'd love you know yeah absolutely um, and I looked at the script that Kelly and he Kelly Marcel mm-hmm. had written and that was based on their story that they'd been working on and it was just like it was such a beautiful kind of you know, it, it was like stepping onto, yes, it was stepping onto the uh, fast moving train because the first film had had that big success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, yeah, admittedly, critically, it hadn't done well in it. You know, some people didn't like it, but on the whole, it reached a massive audience. So it's just like, how do we now take, to, you know, the, 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 work, the, the work that has gone into setting this up? How can we really enjoy it now? How mm. can we bring, how can we bring it? Um, you know, what, what are we, the things that we really want to land on? And of course, we, we, it was teased that Carnage, Cletus Cassidy, was going to mm-hmm. come into it, and mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, and it was going to centre around this odd couple relationship and this, you know, the bizarreness of their of their uh, the fact that they're perfectly matched, and uh, you know, he is the host of hosts for for, for, for Venom, and um, and yet they're living in a tiny little flat and he's a, a maniac and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he wants to realise their potential and, and uh, you know, Eddie, Eddie Brock is living with his own failings as a human being mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a kind of hardcore uh, lethal protector inside him. <laughs> so when you came on board, what, what input did you have into the story? How much did it change when you came on board? Well, I, 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 what I did was uh, sort of, uh, was just try to pull out um, or, or, you know, working with Kelly and working with Tom, sort of just kind of pull out the moments, I suppose, that that I, that I thought ex- would exemplify for all of the characters, you know, you know, um, ha- you know, take, taking take, taking the, the nuggets that were there, they were definitely all there, uh, but just, just like pull, pulling them out and, and really trying to, first of all, really identify how we make Carnage different as a, you know, as a, as a symbiote, you know, in terms of his, uh, who he is, what his, his 
mindset is, what his physicality is, how different he is to Venom. He is the mm -hmm. son of Venom after all. Mm -hmm. But, you know, how does he move physically? Um, what powers does he have? I mean, in the comics, he, he's sort of molecular. He can change in a molecular way and he can he can turn himself into mist if he wants to, you know. So, so it's just like, what what are the rules, I suppose? Set what, yeah, yeah. You know, set what are the rules that we are giving ourselves to, to with Carnage? Um, how do they, how do the transformations work? How, um, what, what do they represent in kind of thematically in, um, uh, you know, how do they, as a, as a, as a symbiote to a host, how does he relate to Cletus Cassidy versus how does Venom relate to Eddie? And, you know, they, they are true, as you would have seen from the movie, you know, they are true symbiotes, uh, Ed and Eddie, they are, Eddie and Venom, they are a perfect match. Whereas the, 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 complicated and screwed up nature of Cletus Cassidy's character and the, and also Carnage's character, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, make them both narcissists so that they're kind of, <laughs> they're un, unable to truly kind of, um, truly be symbiotes. You know? Yeah. They both want the number one jersey, exactly. so to speak. Exactly. Although number one jersey is goalkeeper. So, you know, yeah. maybe the number nine. Sure. Anyway, it's a complicated metaphor and I'm going to abandon it, but they, they both basically <laughs> want to be the king of the pack. Correct. Uh, yeah. Essentially. Yeah. With, so, with, the, with the triumvirate, with the third person being, you know, the person that the Cletus is, you know, love and adored for, yes. for all his life and is truly connected to is, and is who gets in the way of, of the, who becomes the third party who gets in the way of Carnage and um, Cletus and their relationship. I, I thought that was really interesting uh, that the movie begins actually with a flashback yeah. to young Cletus and, and, uh, and young Francis as well in that, you know, you would expect a big Venom sequel to start with Venom doing a Venomy thing. Yep. But you don't do that. No. You can talk about where, where that, like, that came from. Yeah, because we, we I mean, we decided that, I mean, we tried different uh, openings actually, um, but we decided we wanted to get that ball rolling and, and set up the street character. Mm. And, and, and I, I, I'm really glad we went that way because it's, it's sort of, it does exactly what our movie needs, which is to, to have that balance between kind of real emotional, you know, truthful, you know, grounding in, 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 in the stakes emotionally. You set those stakes up. Then you've got somewhere really, you can, you can, it then travels through to the comedy of, of, of the relationship, you know, the odd couple relationship between Eddie and Venom. And, and yet you've got this underpinning of darkness and, you know, this brooding kind of, um, set of foreboding of, of the coming of carnage eventually. Uh, so, so, so I think, but it sort of underpins the whole thing by starting off that way. And it is, it's sort of, I mean, in you know, this is, this is a, you know, a, P, a PG 13 movie, but it, it's thematically, it is, there are adult themes in there mm -hmm. and yet we, we, and we push it to the very, very limit that we can without breaking it and it becoming an R rated movie. But we put, we really do push it to the edges in terms of, you know, it's, you know, we, we, we're effectively starting off with a cop shooting a, a young black girl, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's the resonances are there for, for those who want to pick them up, Yeah, you know, um, and you know, death by lethal injection and all of, all of those, all, all, all of the, you know, the darker elements of, 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 of humanity mm -hmm. and, and the way that we treat each other. Um, you know, the LGBTQIA you know, sort of thematic, which comes in with, you know, with um, Venom being 
free and coming out, as it were. You know, yes, I've come out of the Eddie closet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And feeling connected and feeling that he is other, but actually here he's yeah. found his people. Yeah. Um, little Sims, you know, and, <laughs> yes. and her, all. So, so we we allow ourselves, I think, to go to to ground it so that it feels. You, there are stakes, even in Eddie's screwed up relationship with with Anne, and uh, and and you know that that and the stakes of the fact that they still kind of weirdly hold a bit of a torch for each other, and or, or they're connected in some way, but never as a couple, uh, never would work as a couple. So yeah. it's all to do with it is all to do with real relationships, and then on top of that, you've got these, you know, nine foot symbiotes who <laughs> who are crunching their way through. Lots of heads and and San Francisco. (laughs) I have to say as well, watching Woody Harrelson playing a serial killer who is part of a serial killing couple who are, you know, unapologetically evil. There is for me, there were clear natural born killers overtones. Is that can you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's not be about the bush, you know. And plus, (laughs) plus, what was hilarious, of course, is that Bob Richardson, who who's our DOP, you know, shot natural born killers. So it was like it was a fantastic reunion. I've got a great picture of them both, actually. Uh, (laughs) You know, sort of whenever. When was that made? Twenty years ago? No, more. Twenty five years ago. Nineteen ninety five. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Twenty five, twenty six years ago. You know. So it's so it was a ninety four, ninety four. So that so that. Yes, there's there is that, but I actually feel with Cletus that there is, you know, we do get a little bit of a way to to unpack his psychology and his psychosis, and and uh, um, uh, you know that that was that was important to be able to do that because that's really, you know, he and Eddie are connected in some way. They're they're they do share this lack of um of, of dysfunctional family life and uh and more is more brutal of course in Cletus's case because he kills most of his family but um <laughs> but uh, but he but there's still a vulnerability that Woody brings to him which is which is quite touching i think i mean there there, there is that childlikeness yeah, in yeah. There that he has so he's not a kind of completely cold psychotic killer i mean he can you know he can flip the switch but but the, he definitely feels he definitely kind of has feelings in a way i was i was intrigued to see that because again in a movie like this and i think you guys are aware obviously of of the numerous movies in this genre and i think sure. there's a little bit of you pushing it against that and being aware of the expectations being aware of the tropes and trying to undermine and undercut them what was interesting to me is that there was only one confrontation between carnage and Fenham. Um, and there are other confrontations and other meetings throughout the film between Eddie and Cletus. Yeah. But there's only one between the, the two big symbiotes. Was that always the case? Can you talk about, about that decision? Yeah, yeah, that was pretty much always that there would be the final kind of face face down and, and you know, that that it, that it was that they're they're sort of skirting each other and sizing each other up and, and playing, manipulating each other. I mean, you know, Eddie Brock, he's he is serving himself when he goes in for those interviews early on. He, he wants his career back and he sees it as an opportunity. And Cletus is trying to use him to get to, to uh, Francis. So it's so that, you know, they are sort of using their a kind of relationship that they have because he's he's the only one that 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 Cletus wants to see um and 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 that and i i i really love that kind of that sense of that those you know those prison visits i love i love the way it builds and the, that their story builds their connectivity builds throughout that and then like you say when 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 and even in the final you know in the battle in the third act it's still it's still what what riles them what what riles 
Cassidy about, you know, he's got this kind of moral relativist kind of, you know, if we were really being <laughs> truthful to ourselves, you know, we would do, you would be me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, I, so I, 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 they are, they are dark themes, but, but, at the same time, you've got two great comedic actors or actors who are capable of performing great comedy as well, and and f- just just constantly sort of like flipping between those those ideas. And, and there was there was even more humour actually with and so with some of the dialogue with um, with Cletus. But we we had to sort of rein it back in because we never wanted to get to a point where anybody was was sort of signaling that they were having a lot of fun with their characters do, do you know what i mean it's not that kind of movie it's Tongue not in cheek it's yeah, not a t- it. yeah. yeah it's not a kind of self-referencing yeah kind it's of not deadpool for example it's not yeah. it's not yeah. that and and i mean purposefully wanted to sort of much as though i love deadpool yeah wanted to keep away from that that end of you know that end of it because because ultimately the and actually the stakes in De- in deadpool are still there but yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but you know but but we wanted to just you know, it's a tricky. It is a tricky balance, and was a tricky balance taking from the first movie and s- sowing those seeds so that, that they were, they felt really, as I say, grounded all the time emotionally. Okay, so that was Andy Circus talking about Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And if you want to hear more Andy Circus, the the remainder of that interview, as well as us talking about Venom, Let There Be Carnage, then sign up now to our spoiler special channel. It is fantastic. There's loads of stuff coming your way. Halloween Kills with David Gordon Green, The Green Knight with David Lowry, Last Night in Soho with Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson-Cairns, Antlers with Scott Cooper, The Last Duel with Nicole Holof Center, Dune with Denny Fielneuve. Oh, how could I forget that? No, I don't How know. How can I forget that? We're doing a retro Back to the Future spoiler special with Bob Gale, the co-writer and producer of that movie as well. My, my God, the spoiler cup really does runneth over, folks. So uh, if you want to know how to uh, sign up to that, then go to empireonline.com forward slash spoiler specials for more details or check out my pinned tweet on Twitter at Chris Hewitt once again. <sighs> I think we're done. I think we're done. I think we're done. I think we got through it. We made it. I feel more drained at the end of this than I did after our spoiler special marathon the other day. <laughs> I, I honestly, I feel absolutely sapped. I, I don't know. I might just have to refuel with a. Oh no! I might have to drink a Coca Cola. Oh, oh no. no! What a shame. Other uh, cokes are available. Other cokes are no Ooh, Coke no. Zero. Oh god! No, Coke, colas. no. Other colas are no. available. Oh god! No, no. Coke Zero is the one. Coke Zero is the one. Yeah, followed by full fat Coke and then Diet Coke and fuck off as far as I'm concerned. I just want to do shout out Pepsi Max. Pepsi Max is underrated. Wow. Okay. Well, you're all. I feel like I've just uh, sapped Chris of his last remaining will to live. Coffee exists, guys. Oh, yeah, it does. Delicious coffee. Tasty coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by... Kristen Stewart. Woo! Kristen Stewart, because she is playing Princess Diana in Spencer, mm. which is a biopic with a twist. Kind of. It's not really a biopic. That's the twist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we'll be joined by her, and we will be joined by two of the stars of Eternals, neither mm. of whom came to Camden, by the way. They weren't in those scenes. That we know of. That we know of. What, oh, what I mean, want? they might have just come to Camden yeah. just for some shopping or That's something. That's true. You know? It's true. Uh, they are, of course, Kamel Nanjiani and Salma Hayek. Very fun interview, by the way. And uh, I, uh, I think there's someone else. I think there is someone else, but I can't remember who it is. But ch- tune in next week to find out. Find out. Uh, have a great Halloween, everybody. But until Halloween. we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. James has gone off to ride a sandworm. Ben Travis. 
Goodbye. <laughs> Can I just say, we have recorded the last 15 minutes of this podcast in the dark. <laughs> it's a very spooky vibe in here. It really is. I'm scared. It's working. Can you see, can you see my face at all? Uh, just about. You, you've got some residual light on you. It is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Toodaloo. like anyone it's time to listen to all of these by Sunday <laughs> and it's goodbye from me I'm off to join my old mate Timmy Two Meats on the set of June Part 2 I might apply to become a janitor on that movie because if Denny Villeneuve follows the Alejandro Jodorowsky playbook well let's just say they might need some cleanups on aisles 1 to 2000 oh my word oh no oh dear Gom Jabbar everywhere no Fremen all over the place that's not how that works I don't know what it is Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye.